This is a FUBAR Radio podcast. For more information, go to FUBARradio.com. The floor is yours on FUBAR Radio. The eyes to the right, 242. The nose to the left, 391. So the nose have it, the nose have it. Unlock. The House has today provided a clear majority against leaving without a deal. However, I will repeat what I have said before. I'm surprised at how badly it's all gone from the standpoint of a negotiation. I gave uh, the Prime Minister my ideas on how to negotiate it, and I think you would have been successful. She didn't listen to that, and that's fine. I mean, she's got to do what she's got to do, but I think it could have been negotiated in a different manner. It was Tony Blair who said that the way to stop Brexit was first to vote against the Prime Minister's deal, then to vote against no deal, and then to seek a long extension. It is votes on Tuesday, Wednesday and tonight. This is the precise script followed by the Leader of the Opposition. Perhaps he should share with us whether it was Tony Peter or Alistair that voted for him. The question is that Amendment H be made. As many as all that have been in say, aye. Of the contrary, no. Division! Clear the lobby! Division is right. Hello, uh, my name is Emma Burnell, and for those of you paying attention, I am not Femi. Um, I'm covering for Femi while he's out gallivanting around the country trying to save it. Um, I am a political activist, co-chair of Open Labour and a political commentator and journalist as well. Uh, And I'm really delighted to be here. So thank you very much to FUBAR for having me. We are going to talk about austerity today. Um, What does it mean to you? How has it affected your life? How is it affecting the lives of everyone in the country? And what impact has it had? So we'd love to hear from you. Tweet us at FUBAR Radio. But first of all, I'm joined by Sophie Walker. Sophie was the founding leader of the Women's Equality Party. Welcome, Sophie. Hi, hello. Hello. So, bit of a quiet week, all things considered, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't know about you. I've been sitting twiddling my thumbs. I just wish something would happen. Absolutely. I mean, I think we have to start by talking about the dreadful um, incident that happened in New Zealand uh, that we all sort of woke up to find out about today. Yes. I mean, you know, just another horrific attack on two mosques, I believe it was. Mm. Um, you know, last I checked, there was 49 deaths and mm. several more injured. Mm. Um, I mean, obviously, we send our sympathy, our solidarity to everyone affected. Um, what, can, what more can we do? Because it just feels to me like thoughts and prayers are just not enough. No, and um, I, uh, it's been an interesting morning uh, discussing this across, uh, you know, with friends and with colleagues and, um, you know, talking about it on social media. Um, I mean, I, I can't quite believe that uh, <laughs> both uh, Donald Trump and Boris Johnson have gone out and said, you know, what a terrible tragedy this is. You know, Trump, the man who has stoked uh, uh, white supremacist hatred for the last however long he's been in office and um, Boris Johnson who has been uh, um, who has written whole articles about uh, Muslim women comparing them to bank robbers and letterboxes and you know contributing to um, a general sense of dislike and division Um, I think one of the really important things that we we also have to look at here um, is 
just how much of this um, fundamentalist violence mm. is being perpetrated by men. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I've been talking about that uh, this morning and, uh, and the response has been very interesting mm. um, uh, because I think, um, you know, if this, was, if this was being perpetrated by pretty much any other group, uh, you know, if it was, you know, being done by... I don't know. I mean, you know, if you if it was being done by any other particular group class of people, we would have identified it and mm. we would be saying, OK, what is happening with that group of people that we need to look at in order to understand the reasons for the violence? Um, but there is this huge spike of aggression and defensiveness when we try to look at the fact that the vast majority of, of this violence is being perpetrated by men. Mm, mm. And there is an awful, um, awfully strong correlation, isn't there, with domestic violence as well. I and mean, that, that is quite often you know, a real indicator of someone who is likely to, to commit other acts of violence. Well, it is to, there is some correlation. I think what's... Michael Kimmel has done some really interesting work on this. He has um, written a book which is called um, Healing from Hate, where he interviewed um, young men who had been involved... Um, in all sorts of extremist violence, um, you know, former uh, former Nazis, former jihadis, uh, you know, former, I mean, you know, he, basically lots and lots of men from all sorts of backgrounds who have been drawn into violence. And he speaks very compellingly about the fact that um, we are living in a very uncertain world. We are living in a very divided world. Mm -hmm. We are dealing with globalisation, mm -hmm. um, uh, precariousness of jobs. Uh, men in particular are having to cope with the... Um, very dramatic changes to their status. There are more women going into work. You know, there are you know children who are getting a better education than their father. And what's happening is that rather than internalising this stuff, men are um, projecting it outwards. And what he, what Michael Kimmel has found by talking to these men is that the thing that links all of them is a sense of failure as a man, mm, mm. and and that that is being pushed outwards into this really appalling. Uh, violence against the world in general and I, I really wish that we could start to really look at that and talk about it with compassion and generosity because you know I find it very frustrating as a feminist um, who wants equality for everybody who talks about this in a way that is trying to say listen we have to understand the structures at work here and we have to understand what's going on um, to, to consistently meet a level of defensiveness that makes it very very difficult to get underneath Absolutely. And I, I mean, I think that moves us neatly on to probably our next topic, because I think there are definite similarities. I mean, I don't, not in the terrorism terms, but in that structural issue uh, of what caused us to Brexit. If you look at you know, where people particularly strongly voted to leave, mm. it was a rejection of the system. Mm. And, you know, and quite right that they should reject the system that has led them into this place. Personally, I think it was the wrong form of rejection mm. but that is it, it, it is that understanding and compassion rather than the anger and division that we need to be to be working on as a country whether you're a remainer or a lever trying to understand each other um however <laughs> but this week has not been a week where anyone has understood oh, anything yes. or anyone yes yes <laughs> um i mean we've had it's three days of votes that simply reject every option mm -hmm. leaving us with I'm not sure with anything well in the words of Theresa May nothing has changed 
Uh, well, um, yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd say things have changed in that, you know, patience is running even thinner than ever before um, and businesses are more worried than ever before. Um, I, I mean, I I am an advocate for a people's vote, um, As am you I. know, because I do feel that um, uh, we need to um, have a chance to talk again about this in much the same way that Parliament's had countless votes yeah. Uh, on what to do about it, I think it was not too much to ask to ask you know if the if the people could maybe have one more given the the extent of the uh, uh, mess out there. Yeah, I mean by the end of last night, I think the House of Parliament had decided uh, the MPs had decided um, not to give control back to the people and not to give control back to Parliament and to ask for an extension from the EU so that they could figure out who. To who is going to be in control, right? <laughs> so, I mean, I think, um, and I think, uh, I have a huge amount of sympathy for people who voted leave. Some people who voted leave. Some people who yeah. voted leave. I mean, there's, you know, the, 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 and that is the difficulty of this, isn't there? People voted leave um, for a huge, yeah. and, and, and remain too, for a huge, huge array mm. of reasons. Um, but one of the things that, uh, frankly, enrages me is um, that we were like the, the narrative behind. Uh, this referendum was so manipulated mm. and uh, and uh, uh, false. Mm. You know, we've had ten years now of austerity. Uh, we've seen communities f- fracture and fall apart. Uh, we've seen people in the very, very poorest uh, and most badly hit communities then being sold anti-immigrant rhetoric mm. and being told, mm. you know, the reason that you're struggling to find housing, uh, the reason you're struggling to, you know, get a doctor's appointment or the reason you've got a long wait at the hospital is because of somebody who's got a different skin colour to you. And, I, I mean, it's outrageous. And, and, and you know, this is, not, um, this is not the time to sort of berate people for voting leave. I think now is the time to say, listen, all of those things happened because we had 10 years of austerity. Absolutely. The public services are, are, are you know, collapsing. Um, and I also think that, you know, our democracy is not functioning, as we're seeing every single day in Parliament. And the way that you improve democracy is that you get more voices, you get better perspectives, you, you know, you listen to people from as many communities as possible. Mm-hmm. This is not the time to start saying, well, you know, we've got nothing else to say about this, so we just have to carry on regardless. Absolutely. And I, again, that does move us on neatly to our main topic, which is the austerity, which mm. I think is the driving cause of Brexit, Mm. as far as I'm concerned. But it's also had an impact on so much else in the country. Mm. Um, I mean, uh, since 2010, adult social care in England, uh, the budget shrunk by seven billion. Yes. And that's, you know, as we are having an explosion in need and requirement for adult social care, local councils are finding that they can't do almost anything else because Mm. all of their money Mm. is going on that statutory service. Mm. And we are seeing... Everywhere, public realm being uh, you know being trashed, people just not being able to afford the, the kinds of things that we we count on the councils for, library services, cleaning services, all of these things are being run down and run down and run down. Mm. Was it a necessary choice? Well, you've hit on exactly the right word there. It was a political choice. Mm. You know, we have been told again and again that austerity. 
uh, was not a choice, that it was simply something that had to happen uh, from a party that, you know, consistently presents itself as being uh, the only party that is, you know, fiscally responsible. Um, I don't think anybody could look at the state of the country right now and conclude that the Conservative Party is uh, fiscally responsible. Austerity is a choice, and it was a choice to make women pay. When you look at the statistics, it's very clear now, uh, it's there in black and white, that women paid 86 pence out of every pound um, that was saved on austerity because of a choice made by uh, the Conservative Party um, to um, uh, to save money on um, social infrastructure and spending uh, and, and offer it in tax cuts to the rich um, who have all now buggered off yeah. um, you know we've we've had some we've had I mean you know this one good thing to come out of this is that it proves I think and I, I hope uh, that the trickle down theory absolutely uh, does not work. Um, we seem to have to rediscover that every generation, do, though, don't, don't we? we? Yeah. And it didn't work yeah. in the eighties either. No, it didn't work and in I'm the 80s old enough either. to remember. <laughs> <laughs> no, but so there's a, uh, there's a very interesting report out by New World Wealth. Um, this is not a publication. I think I want to read too much out because it's <laughs> sort of making me feel a bit sick. But the number there's been a major outflow of millionaires um, uh, leaving London for the US and the UAE and Australia. Although they still own all the property. They still own all the property, <laughs> and we've also seen all these wonderful pro-Brexit um, uh, businessmen, the likes of uh, James James Dyson, Dyson and Jim yeah. Ratli- Rat- Ratcliffe. You know, oh, oops, I think I, I, I might have you know, left something in Monaco that I better go and check. Um, I think that uh, uh, what's further demonstrated that this was um, a very deliberate choice is the fact that this... That the magic money tree keeps producing for mm. other people. Yeah, absolutely. It's really funny that, isn't it? Like they found a billion pounds for the DUP. They found a the billion magic pounds for the DUP. Money tree. Uh, but it turns out that the <laughs> 1.7 billion they promised these towns who are particularly voted Brexit and have been particularly affected, that's not new money. No, it's not new money. And it works out to just a few, a few million, um, a few million per yeah. town. I mean, you know, I think... We, we have to explode austerity, and we, but we also have to understand that it was presented by multiple parties, let's face it, as it wasn't just the Tories, as, you know, the sensible thing to do. Um, and I think that uh, I think and hope that we have now got to a point where we have seen the drastic uh, uh, problems that it's causing and actually the further expense that it's causing in terms of cost to communities that we're now seeing, for example, in the cost of justice and in the cost of picking up the pieces when the you know the support services um, are not there. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I, I agree with you that the, the Labour rhetoric of too far, too fast was still accepting the premise that there mm. should have been. Mm. And actually, you know, basic Keynesian economics mm. will tell you to spend counter-cyclically. Um, I learned this from Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat when I was five. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things that I, you know, as a feminist, I mean, the reason I went into politics as a feminist was because I think that, you know, there is a feminist political ideology that resolves this. And, and, and that is investment in social infrastructure. It's investment in women. It's investment in the jobs that women do that we, we as a society don't value and we don't see. And that is... You know, every single budget, the Chancellor stands up and says, and it's always a fella, like whatever party, yeah. says, you know what, I've had this brilliant idea for getting the economy going. Let's invest in hmm, housing, uh, railroads, uh, uh, you know, uh, construction, physical infrastructure, men's jobs. Right? Now, that's not to say that those things aren't necessary. But what we consistently then see uh, portrayed is that investment in care um, is an expense. Now, the Women's Budget Group has shown that if you invest 2% of GDP in construction, you get 750,000 jobs. 
If you invest 2% of GDP in care, you get 1.5 million jobs. Mm -hmm. You get higher tax revenues and reduced spending on welfare. Like, that is fiscally responsible yeah, that is absolutely. you know building an economy that works for everybody and yet not one single other party other than the women's equality party has come up with a spending model that is pound for pound in social infrastructure as in physical infrastructure mm-hmm. and i sincerely hope that this gets picked up fast mm-hmm. uh, because our communities are falling apart and, and and you know women have been pushed into poverty and we cannot sustain and brexit's coming down the road at us, and I am deeply, deeply worried that um, you know any form of Brexit, frankly, because economists are forecasting anything from 1.5% fall in GDP to a 9.5% fall in GDP. You know, any sort of economic recession is going to hit women first because they are the poorest people in the UK. The poorest people and the people with the most um, burden to shoulder usually, and particularly in terms of care. So the less the state is helping, either with end-of-life care, elderly care or youth care, that always falls predominantly on women. Uh, It shouldn't. Mm. These should all be our shared burdens, no matter who you are. But we both know that that's not currently the case. Well, but also, I mean, you know, we should start to see care as something of value. It is always portrayed as a burden. Um, And, you know... I, again, this is one of the reasons I got into politics, because I am a carer. I have um, a daughter uh, with autism. It took us five years to get a diagnosis for her because we kept being told she's a girl. She can't get autism. Only boys get autism and they all look like Rain Man and they're all really good at maths. This is because we don't diagnose autism to a template that understands what it looks like in girls. But that's a rant for another day. Um, (laughs) We'll have you back. (laughs) But I... um, you know, I think that, like, so I spend a lot of time with carers, with other women who are supporting uh, particularly children and girls on the spectrum. And I see the the value of care. I see the... I see the kindness of carers, the patience, the tolerance, the creativity of carers. And I think these are brilliant people that we should be investing in. This, this, is, this is of huge value to our society. I, I mean, I completely agree with you. When I talk about burden, what I mean is the fact that we do not, we do not fund this yeah. kind of care oh, properly. Yeah, yeah. So it is, it's a very tough choice to make for some people who just simply can't afford to do the care that they really want to because of course that's what you, where you want to be. Of course that's who you want to be and how you want to be. And it's so difficult because we just make it so difficult. And that, again, as you say, is a choice. It's a political choice that we've made not to value that in the right way. Well, and, and we present it as a lifestyle yeah. choice, right? Ladies, mm. uh, you've, had, you've, had, you've had these... You, you chose to have these babies. That's your lifestyle choice. And I'm like... Mm, I think like we didn't just produce them on our own. Well, A, we didn't, <laughs> we didn't produce them on our own. And B, well, yeah, where do you think the next generation's going to come from? Well, and then, of course, <laughs> we're told we're raising them all wrong and they're all fat and terrible. <laughs> oh, yes, that amazing... Oh, my God, that amazing piece of research at the weekend yeah. that said that basically childhood obesity is linked to single mothers. I mean, that... That's just staggering. I mean, the fact that you could undertake an entire piece of research and not for a moment consider the impact on children of not having uh, fathers who are present and sharing in care. No. But it's part, you know, we do as a society, we blame women. We blame women hugely rather than looking at the structures that are causing the massive inequalities. Completely. Um, I mean, speaking of children, uh, we're coming up next. We've got a wonderful clip by the amazingly named Delhi Parton. I mean, what a great name. Um, she's a music teacher from West Bromwich, um, and she spoke up about the cuts that have happened in her school uh, recently on BBC Question Time. So, Sophie, thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome. It's been great fun. Thank, thank you, you for having me.
I work in a secondary school right in between where two young men were murdered in Birmingham within the last two weeks. And I'm dealing with very, very scared young individuals. And I'm on the front line of this. And this keeps getting passed back to us. And I, as a teacher, can only do so much as my colleagues can. We like to think that we can reassure our pupils, but all their services have been cut. We're telling them not to go to parks. Where can they go? Everything has been withdrawn. When I first started teaching in 2007, we had youth support people, we had youth centres, yeah. we had outreach projects, we had people coming in and out of schools all the time. We do not have any funding for those sort of projects, or very little, and we're making the best of what we can do. And it's not fair. If you want this sorted, then funding needs to go globally, to police, to schools, to youth funding, and to arts projects, because this is the best way to get young people off the street and engage, because that's what we need. We need engagement with young people. I don't want to walk into school and find out that one of my young people has been murdered brutally. We've spent 2.7 million on transport projects that haven't been working. That money should have gone to young people. It should have gone to old people and social care services. It's absolutely criminal, the waste. If I had such... Uh, irresponsible actions in my job, I would no longer have my job. And I think we need to start holding people to account and to account of the spending that we're making. FUBAR Radio presents... Maria Rose. Very warm welcome to Nina Las Vegas. This American vlog posted last Friday and I and they just posted a whole bunch of males that put out music on Twitter. And they're like, great day for music, like Tiesto, Weethan, like you know, all these kind of big white <laughs> males in yeah. EDM. And it was like 10. And they wrote, who did we miss? And I just couldn't help. I was like, you miss women. If you want to be a male DJ or, you know, identify as male and get on a lineup with 10 other males, enjoy your fucking night. Because to me, that sounds like a jock horror film so if you want that cool every thursday harriet rose from 4 p.m fubar radio the floor is yours on fubar radio Hello, uh, welcome back. I'm joined now by Stephen Canning of the Young Conservatives and of uh, My Life, My Say, is that right? Yes, that's great. Yeah. And also Mike Goldsworthy, who is the founder of Scientists for EU and NHS for a People's Vote. Uh, so welcome both of you. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, so we're here to discuss largely austerity. That's the topic of the day. Uh, we had the spring statement uh, at the beginning of the week. Stephen, did you, did you welcome any of the measures in there? Well, I think it's largely been overshadowed by some <laughs> of the, the thing we've all been talking about for a past year. But, um, no, it was good. I, you know, it was never going to be a big, dramatic event with a lot going on, but it was good to see some more money available for, for certain things. Um, I'm sure, as always, there could have been more. But And, Mike, how did you take the uh i mean that that largely blew past me because i'm right in the <laughs> middle of this brexit mess at the moment and i am working full time on it and late into the night and still it's leaving me confused <laughs> so um so that's been uh, occupying my mind a lot but um as a, as a general issue um brexit itself has caused a lot of blockage in parliament mm. that means that you just can't get a lot of other things yeah. through and we know there's a ton of needs out there in society right now but with less money and less parliamentary bandwidth to do it because brexit is getting in the way of everything yeah so yeah i suppose you think sort of uh it was only last year you um, we were talking about social care and that was mm. the massive issue and yeah. everything was going to start collapsing if we didn't sort it out 
we haven't done anything about it, and we're not even talking about it. I don't think we've even had the green paper yet, have we? (laughs) Yeah, but we're not even talking about it anymore. There's there's tons of things being being held up, and and um, if we're seeing damage already caused by lack of investment in society. I'm, I am very concerned about what comes down the line because of these years of neglect where we're preoccupied with other stuff. Um, as a general thing, for example, with um, health in the community and, and the measures that were recently announced by Matt Hancock to start engaging in that, yeah, good idea, but these are actually some of the things that were gutted mm. just the year before. Mm. And so it does very much feel as though we're, we're treading water and not moving forward while situations in, in some aspects are getting quite alarming absolutely and and i mean it's a bit of a chicken and an egg thing isn't it did austerity cause brexit brexit is going to cause more austerity yeah. you know how do we apart from i mean i think we're all slightly on the same page on brexit i believe <laughs> um but ha- apart from that what else can we do what can we do now what can we what 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 should we do tomorrow in parliament to just make a real difference to people's lives. Well, I think the important so we have been just very uh, doomy and gloomy just now, and and there are terrible things, and there, there there are huge gaps and things that do need to be invested. But but not everything going on right now is terrible. Our employment is up and has been going up. A number of full time jobs are up. So there there is good news out there, and I think we just need to pay attention to that good news a bit more. Try and do something with that. Uh, you know, and, and, and like you were just saying, we need to try and. So there is more money available. Um, uh, amount of tax collection from income tax this year has gone up by 13% in January. We had our biggest surplus we've had. We should be spending some of that money on reinvigorating the economy, um, on doing stuff like the healthcare stuff sooner. Um, and still not talking about Brexit constantly. <laughs> you, you know what I'm going to say about jobs, <laughs> don't you? Um, which is, yeah, there may be good Wait stats on paper, but of course, the quality of work mm. that people mm. do and the um, insurance and the security that they have in their lives is very important. Mm. And it is a reality the world over that the kind of work and contracts we're going into as we're getting very competitive internationally, have less and less security associated with them, um, a less uh, long term, lots of zero hour contracts, um, sometimes uh, very sort of fragile conditions associated with them. And that means that lots of people's lives are very precarious. So there's a lot of stats that we have used throughout the the tail end of the uh, 20th century that we still continue to use that can be very misleading, such as just straight-up employment rate when you're defining it very loosely, such as GDP when you're talking about... Um, well, where does that money actually sit within society is a key issue. And I really do think that we do need a new set of stats that, that more starkly, perhaps, and we need to face up to this, highlight what we're looking at. But I agree with you thoroughly, and I think all, all, everyone is agreeing across the board now, that we actually do need investment. Mm-hmm. Um, people are jittery about where to actually get that investment from, but we know now that if you don't invest in systems and they start falling apart on you, it gets very alarming mm-hmm. and we do need to fix up the house and we do need to do that urgently. And the GDP point is really interesting because, yeah, it's a terrible measure. It doesn't take mm-hmm. account of all sorts of things. American like GDP is booming, but look at their population growth. Yeah. And also, who is that going to? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah it doesn't take, advantage, uh, take account like future investments, you know, stuff yeah. we're doing to protect the environment and, and yes, things like that. Abs- and absolutely. Yeah, so the, the, very good. Completely agree with you, but on the jobs point, you're not wrong. The, 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 
the jobs are changing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there are a lot of people that are in roles that are hugely insecure. Uh, but yeah. I, I don't think we're going to change some involvement that. in the, the workplace is important. Yeah. If you're going to come to that, then that is a solid no, point. No, if no. people feel cut out of yeah. the workplace, that is very, very detrimental yeah. to their quality of lives. So it is important that they are in workplace, but we cannot overlook um, the security that goes with that and making sure that you, wider you, society you, you can get You skipped over me about to agree with you. Because <laughs> <laughs> we haven't that. too much agreement. Okay. <laughs> we, we, can, we can roll <laughs> back. No, no, no. What I was going to say is I think... It, that is the changing world. The world of work is changing. So the government does need to, and it hasn't yet, needs to do something to help yeah. redesign our income tax, redesign yep. national, redesign the framework of working to make people, these roles that people are now taking more secure, more understandable, as so the people actually understand them. Like, I, I actually don't think the majority of people really know what a zero hours contract is, what, yep. how, how it impacts their tax rate, yep. how it impacts, what rights they do or don't have. So, we should just we need to clarify this i think yep. that's absolutely right but i think we are in a a culture that simply doesn't live up to being honest about these things. I mean, you, we're surrounded by a press who, one minute, absolutely screams about any raise in tax, and the next is telling us that we're not investing enough to stop knife crime. You know, how do we actually change the conversation as well as simply changing the facts on the ground? Well, we actually, funnily enough, I probably shouldn't have used all our good stuff up before we came in the room, but we, we, were, <laughs> <laughs> we were having a talk about policing. Um, and, and actually, we were talking about, you know, the knife crime issues. Um, and, and a lot of that is focused on London. A lot of the reporting you see is about knife crime and crime rising in London, in Manchester, in places like that. And where I'm from is a, quite a rural area. And we have quite a lot of rising crime as well. And we do need more investment in the policing and we do need more money. to put it. But it's exactly that point. People don't... Uh, the, the press are saying at one point, you know, we need to do more, more money needs to go to this. And then the minute you say, well, let's try and raise more money to this because policing precepts can now be raised separately outside of uh, council tax to add more to it. It's, oh, why are we trying to take more money off people? Uh, uh, and you're completely right. It's, it's, I actually think it's very irresponsible of the press to be reporting in that way. They either want people to do something about the crime epidemic or they don't. Yeah. And yeah. I think there's a real responsiveness uh, in the press that you know, responds to the last thing that happened rather than actually informing people about what might happen. Absolutely. So what, what has happened, if you observe it coldly with the press, is it used to be that you would print these things out. It was a privileged position to write for the press. Everything is pretty much checked out. Reputations are solid. And there's limited amounts of press that is coming out and, and distributed to the nation in paper copy. Now, when you start opening up um, the online press and you open up all the radio bandwidths, then there was a huge amount of competition that came along. Everything got flooded. Now the media are competing for sort of click-throughs online as well. They're competing... Um, for um, against lots of other channels on TV and so it's become an attention grabbing exercise it's gone away from responsible public education and dived for infotainment and that means that you exactly see these phenomena where you're diving for the last piece of information when we're all in a data deluge from the news and it's made our press actually broadly irresponsible because they've been trying to survive by attention grabbing and I think to a certain degree there's been some kind of backlash because I think there's more people now that want longer discussion forums, whether it be um, in, in, in blogs that people are writing or, or in sort of like um, secondary um, 
sources of information that they weren't going to before and they just want that education that they feel is sort of slipping away from them mm. um, because it doesn't feel like there's a lot of planning at the moment. It doesn't feel like there's a lot of cohesion of the nation or a clear program. It feels like everyone's jumpy and reactive mm. and then trying to, to and, and play and that I, game. I, I, don't, I think it's a bit unfair to entirely blame the press for all of that. Oh, yeah, no. I, no. You know, one of the biggest I, it worries... It's, 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 it's not a blame, issue. it's a sort yeah. of like observation of what's been social driving media, us all. I feel, I feel it myself. Yeah. You know. And, and I, I, social media doesn't, I don't think, help the political debate or discourse in any way. It, 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 obviously, it's brilliant we can share information and stuff, but the amount of half-truths or misunderstood statements or or just things that are made up uh, that can spread like wildfire before you then have a chance for people to actually see it. No, no, that's not, that's not true. I'm going to play slight devil's advocate here because... While I largely agree with you, I don't think this is a new phenomenon. Mm. I'm old enough to remember the um, the press coverage of Hillsborough, for example, well before the internet was a thing, and you know there was a, that was an absolute disgrace what the Sun did uh, over Hillsborough, and you know they have. I I, uh, I used to go out with a lad in Liverpool, and every time I went up there, mm. every taxi. Yeah, the, the kind of people who in London would be reading The Sun, all of them had a sticker saying, don't buy The Sun. And they have never, ever forgiven. And why should they? Yeah. So I, I do think that there's a deeper human instinct to have a slight bias and, and to feed our own biases that is not that it is maybe hyped up by social media. It's maybe enabled by social media, but it's not the fault of social media alone. Yeah, and I do think there's a real, real worry now about tribes and tribalism. So I know, for example, that I can spend a few days hanging around in Westminster with my friends or going on the internet, and I will hear exactly the same thing from every single one of them. And then, you know, I could assume that that's the entire world and that's what everyone believes and everyone thinks everything's fantastic and Brexit's brilliant and, you know, everyone's happy. Then I'll go home and I'll talk to my sister and talk to her friends. And, some, you know, it's just a completely different world. And I'll, and I'll talk to her, what her friends are saying. And I do think not enough people, um, and, you know, I hands back, put my hands up and say, I'm guilty of this a lot of the time as well. Don't bother exploring outside of these tribes. And I think we're getting more and more tribal. I, and I think that's absolutely true. I mean, I, I'm thinking about some of the responses I've seen to uh, the kids today. Amazing. Out there demonstrating about climate change. Mm. The generation that is going to live through the disaster to come if we don't do something, you know, they're they're out there, and I'm seeing either, oh silly kids, they they're just bunking off school, and I just think, oh my God, if I was bunking off school, I'd be at home with the Xbox, I wouldn't be marching on about climate change, yeah, and they're, yeah, they're, with, yeah, yeah. with banners that they've obviously spent a long time yeah. making, you know, yeah, yeah. these kids have got something really yeah. important yeah. to say, and if people are just not listening to them because they've written them off already as irresponsible and kids. And even if you disagree with them, is it not a good thing that they would be aware of yeah. their surroundings and aware of the political debate? One of the things that I think we're really missing in schools is this sense of responsibility to the world around you. People are not taught in school how their local council is structured, you know, how the political system of their country is structured, you know, that sense of ownership that we should have within our own communities and our own country isn't being instilled. It's not yeah. just the well, manual skills, it's also that, you know. You're completely right. I mean, I'm a, I'm a bit of a freak because I got elected as a councillor when I was 18. <laughs> Did you? Yeah. We've um, been doing you that for geek. seven years now. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm a complete loser. Um, but uh, uh, but it, was, it was shocking to me, like, how little people at school, at college, and then at university, because I was a councillor during that time, um, 
knew about what we did, what it was, what the role even was. You know, half the people thought I sat in uh, Westminster in Parliament, and you know, the other the other half thought I was on the bin truck picking up the bins. And and and. I think, always bins with local yeah. government. Oh, yeah. well, bins <laughs> and potholes. Yeah. Um, so if anyone's got any ideas, I'll fix them. But it, on, on the young people point, I, could, I think it's absolutely mad that this isn't part of PSHE, mm. part of citizenship, that we're not yeah. encouraging people to go on these sorts of marches. I think they're brilliant. The one thing I will say, though, because actually I have sent an, a tweet out about these marches today um, that you might think isn't, 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 is me being a bit mean to them. I wholeheartedly think it's brilliant they're going out and I fully back them and they should be able to go out and march and it's great and mm-hmm. I, I support the cause as well but but, 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 yeah. but there's definitely a but coming there is a but <laughs> so I, I'll what get I, ready on Twitter later yeah. if you, if you... What, what is worrying me is that we are encouraging these people so I think debate and politics has been on a real downward trajectory in how polite we're being to each other for a long time yeah. and I don't think we should be encouraging these young people to go out and be campaigning and shouting and swearing and, you know... Are uh, they shouting and swearing so, or are they marching and dancing? Exactly. And so I think people should be marching. That's absolutely fantastic. Brilliant. Marching for lots of causes. But I think we shouldn't be marching, you know, fuck, F this, F that, and, yeah. you know, hang this person, hang that person. Let's just... I think these people are the... These children of the future, I want them to be completely engaged well in politics. But way. I want them to be engaged in politics, <laughs> and I want them to be able to bring better debate back yeah. and make it nicer and friendlier again. You know what? I'm going to agree wholeheartedly with you on that, and um, as, as card-carrying Labour myself, I hate... Tory bashing, mm. just for the sake of Tory bashing. And I'm not One saying it's left-wingers, by the way. I'm saying like, yeah, the Tories no, are as rude. I'm I, not trying to blame any political to, party. <laughs> I want to make my own point on this front, um, which is that um, one of the things that this whole Brexit debate has taught us is that you can work across party, um, you can put together those uh, sort of coalitions and get to know people that otherwise you're opposed to. And when you've got that collaborative interworking dynamic, like they do in lots of places in Europe out of necessity, when you've got PR and you've got multiple parties in, there is a healthiness to that that should detoxify tribal warfare. And one of the things that I want to point out as a scientist is that in America, about 93% of scientists vote Democrat. And that's one of the reasons why Republicans, the Republican base, start seeing scientists as their enemy because they're on the other side. And then they start disbelieving scientists on vaccinations, on climate change, on evolution, on all of that. And then you get into a very dangerous scenario. And one of the things I'm proud of in the UK and in Europe is that when it comes to science and when it comes to evidence, there there are no party divisions on that. All of our parties are largely... Um, largely responsible and responsive to data. They may have their own uh, political twist, but you've always got a core of people in each party that will do that. And that is something where I don't want to see um, uh, 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 science and climate change and any issues mm-hmm. starting to break down by party. I think that would be dangerous for all of us if it were to become cultural wars on such fundamental issues that we all share. As, I mean, I think we're all entitled to our own ideology, mm. our own opinions. We are not entitled to our own facts. And that has yeah. to be at the core of politics, really. Yeah. I mean, I think these kids, uh, they're out today. They're marching about climate change. They are doing something that their parents have failed at, frankly. Uh, and I think it's really inspiring to mm. see them just say, no, hang on, we, we have to take action now. Yeah. So, yeah, mm. I think 
we should be supporting them. And yes, we need better political political education, and they'll have to be in school sometimes to receive that. <laughs> but <laughs> they're not I, off every day. just the idea yeah. that they're that they're doing this as a jolly rather than as a genuine concern about their future is just for the birds, frankly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, if you're going to bunk off, like you say, why would you bunk off and go on a climate march? <laughs> exactly. It's quite bad. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it, it's about society. So you've got to get out in society in order to do it. Otherwise, it's just you know just academic sitting in class. Like, come on, get out there, get involved, see what marching is about. And marching um, uh, is, I mean, can be a beautiful thing. If I think back to October, on October 20th, on that lovely sunny day, 700,000 people out there, not a single incident. Um, it was it was really beautiful in vibe. And I think it was Andrew uh, Neal, who is by no means a Remainer, said um, something along the lines of, that was amazing that there were no police incidents whatsoever this is what healthy democracy should look like absolutely and, and i know, think that for me for far like that. more than the two sets of people screaming at each other yeah. every time there's an outside broadcast on anything yeah. and yeah i i'm not sure anyone has ever been persuaded to change their mind by someone shouting in the back of, of sky news broadcast <laughs> yeah. yeah well it just Quite how people think that these. So you watch some of the Brexit debates, and you mm -hmm. see these two people stood on College Green, both with, it's like you're saying, not entitled to their own facts. But they both seem to have facts that are completely impossible that they can both be correct. And they're both arguing, and they're both being incredibly insulting to each other. And I, I just wonder who on earth is watching that and going, oh, oh I don't thought about that. I've elucidated. changed my I'm now going to go vote for <laughs> Remain, or I'm now going to vote for Brexit. I just. I don't understand who thinks that is going to persuade anybody. This is also one of the reasons why um, social media is, is popular and sometimes dangerous and sometimes useful because when you do watch mainstream media, you often get circumstances where it's kind of like, so we've got one person from one polar end and one person from another polar end and we've got two minutes where they're going to throw sound bites at each other and then conclude that there is disagreement. That just leaves people confused and turned off. On social media, whether it be your Remain pages on Facebook or Leave pages on Facebook, people develop narratives together. They develop community together. And so that can be a good thing, but then there's also a danger that it becomes an echo chamber which is unchallenged and doesn't have respect for any outsiders that want to come in and comment. Yeah, and I think that happens. Like, if you think of any of the contentious issues at the moment, um, from, say, Labour anti-Semitism, conservative Islamophobia... Brexit, all of the things over which people disagree, one of the things that's driving that is a misunderstanding of the people who disagree with you. Yes. Mm, and yeah, so. that so I think that's that's a fantastic point. So so from my my life my say organizers are Brexit cafes. So these are um time for a quick plug. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. right. yeah, yeah, well, on my way somehow. Um uh, so they they're, they're events like in, in Starbucks and places like that where they bring people together to talk about what life is like after leaving uh, the EU or what should we not leave or what the deal should be. Blah, blah, blah. I'd say the vast majority of people coming have always wanted to stay in and still want to stay in. A lot of them want to have another uh, have another referendum, etc., etc. It's it's a very often you can get a lot of very like-minded people um, all talking to each other who quite often haven't spoken to people from the other side of the debate. Yeah. So I think one of the most useful things I've seen is uh, some, we will make sure we bring 
hardcore Brexiteers to these events, polite, lovely ones, obviously. <laughs> obviously. Uh, but but that make sure there are people that want... Because once you sit down and these people have a conversation together and share a coffee together, suddenly you think, oh, you're not an evil, horrible person. You just believe something slightly different to me and I can kind of see why you believe it and why you think it. I don't agree with you and I'm, you haven't changed my mind. No, absolutely. I mean, I think we need to wrap up fairly soon. Um I think there's been a really useful discussion about sort of quite a wide range of things, including austerity. Yeah. Um, but if I could just get a final thought from you both, what, what one thing would you change tomorrow if you could? Mike. Oh, my Lord. Just, <laughs> <laughs> just to throw that at you. <laughs> well, obviously, Brexit. Um, that's something that I would like to clear the hell out of the way. I'm all for revoking Article 50 now. So initially when the vote came in, I thought, right, accept it. And this is the plan for UK and EU science is what we've got to go with. Now, uh, then it became a case of, well, if the public don't like it, the public have the right to get rid of it. I think uh, now, personally, I just want to draw people's attention to the fact that it is causing so much damage by sitting there being a blockage on absolutely everyone everything else and I think it's fine to throw it out there to the public as an idea that we do have the ability to pull it, we do have the right to pull it and if you want to pull it then let's all advocate that we pull it. Great, so Stephen you can't have that one now. I know, just taking the <laughs> obvious answer. Uh, uh, for me actually I think I mentioned at the very start, social care um, we're not talking about it anymore, this is a huge bomb that's going to blow up and destroy our economy at some point and we have old people not being able to afford our care, something needs to be done Lovely. Thank you both so much. Thank, uh, you. thank you for joining me. Yeah, it was fun. Chancellor Philip Hammond used Monday's budget to confirm that the austerity era has officially ended, but cuts to council funding, police numbers and social housing will continue. <laughs> Schools, social services and care for the elderly will also continue to be chronically underfunded. Prisons will be overcrowded. The NHS will carry on struggling to manage without enough doctors, nurses or ambulances. Libraries will either be closed altogether or only open at specific points in the lunar cycle. Homelessness will continue to be quite sad but easily ignored and Britain's housing supply will still be controlled by evil bastard property developers <laughs> who think affordable means 250 grand but thank fuck austerity is over. Football Radio presents... It's now time to welcome Tom and Pete from Teleman. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you. What made you decide to put the vocal effects on? It sounded quite cool. It really worked with the tone of the song. Mm. It added a nice edge. So I left it on. Now no one can understand what I'm singing. So I want to put the lyrics on a big screen. That's like a goal of ours. A goal to have it yeah, on a big yeah, screen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe as a piece of art or... Just as a live visuals. Yeah, but you could sell it as a poster. I'm just thinking of merch. I'm just thinking of ways you can make money from it. That's a great idea. It's not yeah. a bad idea Let's get you on board with that. Yeah. Welcome. Um, Welcome to the team. Every Wednesday. Joey Page. From 2pm. Fubar Radio. The floor is yours on Fubar Radio. Hello, and that was a fantastic clip from the MASH report there, uh, talking about the so-called end of austerity. Um, now I am joined by uh, anti-austerity activist Angela Ramsell. Hello, Angela. Hello, Sophie. Uh, sorry, it's Emma, but don't worry, I prefer I'm Sophie. I'm sorry, Emma, I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, it's a much nicer name, I'm much happier with that. No! <laughs> <laughs> so, Angela, tell me about what you've been up to. Um, well, actually, I suppose it goes back to when I was 16 or 17, which is many moons ago, the early 80s. Um, I grew up in the West Midlands in the black country, working class family. 
and um, the impact of then the Tories under Margaret Thatcher Mm. was quite devastating to my community and to my family. And so ever since then, really, I've been doing sit-ins and protesting. (laughs) So, um, yeah, so this is just a continuation of what I've done for the last 30 years. Well, I I can very much uh, empathise with that. My parents met at a sit-in and I was... uh, I was w- marching before I could walk in my buggy. So I, I yeah, <laughs> <laughs> my my son also grew up leafleting, sitting in uh, branch meetings of my local Labour Party. So very similar to yourself. <laughs> Sounds very very familiar. Um, so austerity is so called ending. Mm. Do we feel that that's the case? No, no, I, I don't believe it for one minute. Um, if you look at Hammond's spring statement, it was very clear that that's not the case. The benefits freeze that he is still imposing hits 10 million families, and yet the top 0.1% of our population will see their income and earnings surge. Um, so, no, I don't believe that for a, a, a moment. In fact, I would say I do believe that the ideology of the Tory party, okay, it started when it was a coalition with the Lib Dems, but throughout my lifetime I haven't seen any change in the Tories wanting to support the most vulnerable and local services. And that's the point, isn't it? You know, they told us we were all in it together, but actually the mm-hmm. impact has been vastly different from if you're wealthy, if you live in a, in a uh, you know, the, the, the nicer parts of the big cities, to what it's like for all of the rest of us. Yes. Um, I mean, you mentioned there, sort of, well, Cameron introduced the idea of big society. Mm. Um, and whilst laudable in what he said at the time, what it's actually translated into is the, the government completely abdicating responsibility for vital services. So now we are abusing the goodwill of charities and the voluntary sector who are seen as providers of services, which previously government or local authorities would have done. Food banks is a good example. Um, Going back to your point about, you know, where people live, I actually live in North Wales in a village, um, so it's very rural. Mm. Um, The only services that you can see delivered by our local council, despite the fact they're imposing a 9.7% increase in council tax this year, um, are the bins and occasionally when we really nag them the potholes mm. which was mentioned i think by <laughs> previously <laughs> so in in our area we've had to take over the cleaning and the running of the uh, public toilets um which are very well used because we're in a, an area where we get quite a lot of tourists have a beautiful waterfall um the playground which the council left going to complete disrepair in the last three years again villagers including myself have taken that over and regenerated it otherwise our young people have nowhere to go and if i go to one other thing which relies on public goodwill um i have a very good friend who lives back where i used to live in the west midlands um in a place called willenhall and every other sunday she and a group of other people who call themselves the willenhall wombles do the litter picking amazing isn't it? i mean 
it's fabulous that people are doing these things, but it mm-hmm. is a disaster that, that, that they feel they have to. Uh, yeah, I'm all for community spirit. I think it's wonderful. I'm quite happy to don a T-shirt and go and do a litter pick. But actually, there are services that are not happening that we can't deliver as volunteers. You know, really, really important things like children's centres. So yeah. many of those have closed. You know, things that take dedicated professionals to do. And we just are not paying for those services anymore because there's been so many cuts. Well, it's interesting. You're right. We are not paying for those services. They are not being provided through the public purse into which we contribute. Um, But at the same time, there have been tax cuts. Mm. Um, For example, even I think just this week, and I'm trying to think of this figure, I think it is in Hammond Springs' statement, he has set aside a war chest of £26 billion for a no-deal Brexit. Mm. Um, We know another example would be Boris Johnson's failed garden bridge, £53 million, and there's nothing to show for it. Mm. So all of these are deliberate and active choices. The Tories, in my belief, since 2009, have made an active choice to deprive and uh, cause hardship and heartache. And in some cases, we know, you know, people with mental health problems through uh, their benefits being frozen or not being able to access them, etc. Now, this isn't by accident. The government knows these things are happening, but they're ignoring them. And the the thing that we never talk about with austerity is how much it's actually costing us. Because by making everything so much worse, by running things down, the long-term costs are going to be far higher than if we'd invested in the first place. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you mentioned uh, children's centres. Um, As a member of the Labour Party, um, I was very actively engaged in supporting and setting up um, Sure Start centres, which were for... Um, mothers, I mean, not necessarily single mothers, but usually younger mothers, mothers who needed some support, etc. There were activities for the children. Um, they've gone by the wayside. And then if you look at, I think Jenny was mentioned earlier on, about, for example, saying to kids, you, I think it was the clip you paid as a teacher on question time. Absolutely, yeah. Now, our young people can't go to the parks. They've got no youth centres. So the cost of austerity isn't only a financial cost. In fact, in my, from my point of view, the worst cost is actually the social fabric breakdown, the disservice that we're doing to young people, the way that we're leaving the world, you know, the state we're leaving this country for our younger generation. I have a 22-year-old son who's at university in London, and when I think about the difference of myself at his age and what he has to look forward to, it's really quite stark. Um, just things like, you know, when I graduated, there were graduate schemes, you would look forward to a job for life, you had the security, which meant that you could enter into home ownership, um, my university was free, I wasn't saddled with a debt, and yet, young people these days, all of those things were norm for them, and I mean, you might hear the emotion in my voice. I feel it's tragic. Mm, Absolutely. Well, I mean, I live in East London, and Mm -hmm. three roads down from where I live, there was a fatal stabbing of a really young lad. And you just think, you know, this is a direct result of the fact that we are not investing in either in our youth or in our police or in any of those services that stop these things before they start. And... Of course, at first, because it was so well 
but missold, austerity was considered vital and important. And it's not until it's too late that we actually see the really deleterious effects of it. Well, actually, it's interesting because the first time that austerity was used as a term uh, was after the, uh, the years immediately following World War Two. So that puts it into context. Austerity happened then as a result of a devastating war. We have not implemented austerity this time as a result of a devastating mm. war. It was a financial crash. We know how that was caused. And that isn't the fault of the people who are actually bearing the brunt of it. It's not the fault of the young man, person that you just mentioned, who mm. lost their life. It's not the fault of my son, who is going to be saddled with a huge mm. amount of debt and real struggles getting to a job which provides him with that security. Because we now have this gig economy, which whilst it gives them um, flexibility, particularly for young people, if you work one hour a week, you're classed as employed. Mm. And- um, yeah, okay. absolutely. I mean, we were talking about this with our previous guests. That there are, it just seems to be so hard for too many people, and that's where we've got to uh, in the UK today. You know, we it, it's too hard too often for too many. And I think, Angela, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, it's been really elucidating and it's great to have voices from outside of London, from inside of London (laughs) and showing what we have in common rather than just simply setting ourselves up against each other so I really thank you so much for joining us No, my pleasure, thank you Emma And thank you to everybody for listening to me today, thank you for Femi for um, not being here and letting me take over and my name's been Emma Burnell and it still will be after I've finished You've been listening to a FUBAR Radio podcast. For more information, go to FUBARradio.com.